Let us pray. How great the chasm, Lord, that lies between us. How high that mountain that we know we can't climb. For some of us, we see that mountain and we've lost hope that the mountaintop is even there. For some of us, we have no idea how to get there. For some of us, we know that you've made a way, Lord, but we've lost the joy or we don't know how to respond in that knowledge. However we come to your word today, I pray that its truth and its hope speaks to us, that it inspires us to grow closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And please have a seat and welcome again to new families here and welcome to guests here. Um, we're, we're continuing our exploration through the Gospel of John, the book of John, this morning. And I think um, for the newcomers, I'm going to be starting this in, in a little bit of an unexpected way. And the way I would like to start is by revisiting together a, a story that we're all, I think, very familiar with from the Old Testament. And this is the account of the Israelites and God's parting of the Red Sea. And what I want to do is I want us all to take a moment together this morning and really visualize what was going on there. I want us to really put ourselves in the place of the Israelites as as they were standing on the banks of the Red Sea in the moments before God parted the waters. I mean, we're told in the Bible that this is after the Passover, so the Israelites have fled the enslavement of the Pharaoh across the desert. And so where they find themselves is in the desert. Right? This is a harsh and inhospitable place. It's somewhere you couldn't or wouldn't want to survive in. That's their, their present condition. And then they, they look back over their shoulders and they see the Pharaoh's armies, certain death or enslavement, bearing down on them. And they know there's absolutely nothing that they can do about it. And then they look the other way. They look across the Red Sea to where they know lies the promised land. To the place that they know all would be loved. But between them and the promised land is the Red Sea. It's, it's an impossible barrier that they have no power to cross. And that's where the Israelites find themselves. They're, they're freed from slavery, but there they are in, in what seems like an even more hopeless predicament. And I want to pause there for a moment. That's where I want to linger. And I'm sorry for, for most of us. I know this is going to be like an unresolved melody in your head for a little while. I promise we'll get to the part where God shows up and parts the water and, and, and saves the Israelites. But I want to linger here for a moment before that happens. Because I propose to you, and maybe you've all thought of this this way already, but isn't this an absolutely perfect allegory for our lives before we're saved? I mean, think about it. Don't we find ourselves in, in a harsh and brutal desert? Don't we find ourselves in a world that we know in our, in our deepest in our deepest places is not all that it should be? We look around and we see suffering. We, we see lack. We labor in tyranny. We see our friends and relatives sicken and die. We among all God's creatures are endowed with the knowledge of our own certain death. And in fact, I think that, that the recognition of suffering in this life is one of the few universal human experiences Think about it for a second. I mean, it's the starting presupposition of philosophy. Philosophy's stated goal of helping us see a good life and live it presupposes that we're not living good lives already. Right? Political systems aim to improve the lives of their citizens because there's room for that improvement. All of the world's religions start with this idea of suffering. Think about Buddhism, for example, and its four noble truths. These are the sort of fundamental principles that, that Buddhism rests, the very first of which is simply. Life 
is suffering. And so if humans can universally agree that, that the here isn't all that it should be, doesn't that stand to reason that there's a there that is? In other words, if our current experience isn't good enough, doesn't that necessarily mean that we can imagine some other experience that, that would be? And indeed, that's what you find. Political theorists propose a utopia, right? Uh, um, philosophers tell us that there's a good life. Buddhists believe in nirvana or, or freedom from suffering, right? And so we, we could imagine a better place. What I think human beings have never agreed on is how you get from here to there, right? Because there's always an obstacle in between, isn't there? There's always a Red Sea. And that's exactly what you see, that all of these systems propose different, different bridges, different ways across this obstacle to, to someplace better, from, from here to there. Political theorists say, if we could just find the right political system, we would all be okay. Philosophers say, what would philosophers say? If you could just talk the nature of the existence to death a little bit longer, maybe we would get there, something like that. Uh, Buddha would tell us that if you just meditate enough that you eliminate your attachment to the present world and yourself, you can alleviate suffering and achieve nirvana. And so what's the problem with all of that? These are all ways to get from here to there to, to alleviate our suffering, right? We've all heard the illustration that heaven or enlightenment's just a mountaintop, right? There's, there's lots of different donkeys that you can take to get to the mountain. There's a Christian donkey. There's a Buddhist donkey. But when we all get up there on our donkeys, we're going to find we're all going to the same place. Right? And we're, we're going to hug and we're going to laugh at ourselves for how silly we were to think that our donkey was the only one to get up there. Right? Have you guys all heard this? What's the problem with that? Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, I think we all well know that the problem with that is choosing the wrong donkey is catastrophic. And that's what we're going to see in our reading today. Through the lens of our reading today, we're going to see the absolute unassailable truth of the here and the now in this world. We're going to hear the, the, the truth about a, an, an unimaginably better place, a promised land. We're going to hear the truth about an infinite chasm between us and there, a Red Sea. And we're going to hear the glorious, freeing truth about how we can nonetheless make that crossing. And to do this, we're going to look in John chapter 8. We're going to continue in our study. And we're going to start in verse 21. And, and while everyone is turning there, I just want to reorient everyone to where we are in the Gospel of John. And we find ourselves here, even though we're in chapter 8, we're only in chapter 8 of the Gospel, we're actually pretty far into the latter end of, of Jesus' ministry. And in fact, we're only 60 days or so from his crucifixion. And what this means to us is that by this time, Jesus has performed numerous miracles in front of enormous crowds. And he's taught these crowds over and over and over again the truth about himself and about the kingdom of God. And so to put it differently, I think if you were a Jewish person living in the region at this time, you would essentially have to be living under a rock to not know who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's taught about himself. And we see in Scripture that Jesus' ministry has sort of polarized the Jewish people into what are basically three broad groups. It's what we've seen in the Gospel of John. One group, like the disciples, have accepted him at face value and the truth of what he's saying. They've accepted him as Christ, as the Messiah, and they've decided to follow him. There's another group we've seen in and out of the scripture that are sort of confused genuinely about who Christ is. Maybe they think he's Elijah reborn, or is he this prophet that the Jewish people have been waiting for? Is he something else entirely? Who is Jesus? I think we see a group of people like that. And then we see a third group of people. And this is a group of people who, having seen Jesus, they still elect for their own reasons not to believe in him. 
And that's important because it's this third group of people to whom Jesus is addressing in our reading today. And so again, we're in John chapter 8. And starting at verse 21, I'm going to read the entire section we're studying today all the way through verse 30. And he said to them again, that's Jesus, said to them again, I am going away. You will look for me and you will die in your, in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say and to judge regarding you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I say to the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own, but I say these things as the father instructed me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he said these things, many came to believe in him. So we can see here that Jesus is confronting and teaching the, the Jewish non-believers there with this sort of bewildering series of contrasts, right? And so what does Jesus mean by that? I think we can see within this passage that the contrast that we were talking about earlier, that between this world and that world, between below and above, between here and there. And so what does Jesus mean when he's talking about the world? What does he mean by that? I think that's the key to unlock exactly what he's talking about here. And the key is the word that he uses for world. That world is cosmos. Cosmos. It's the opposite of chaos. Chaos is confusion and disorder. Cosmos is order and structure. And so Jesus, when Jesus says world in this way, when he uses cosmos, he's not talking about the physical world like geographically or geologically. What he's talking about is the world system. He's talking about its ideologies, its beliefs, its thought patterns, its values. We use the word world in this way, too. We talk about the world of sports or the world of politics or the world of business. It's not a physical world of business. What we're talking about is the structure of it, the complex of it. And Jesus is using the word world in this way, too, except he's using it globally. So what he's really talking about is this global, intelligent, invisible world structure, this system that's run the history of mankind since the fall. And we know exactly what this system looks like, don't we? All we have to do is look at human history after the fall. It starts with, with Cain, right? It's filled with malice and greed and fear, and it manifests itself in violent struggles for power. Cain killed his brother, beloved of God, out of fear and envy and spite. And we see this pattern played out throughout the biblical histories. We see war, we see genocide, we see enslavements of entire peoples, we see child sacrifice. And if you think things are getting any better, you need to refresh your, his, your history of the 20th and 21st century, right? We, we have the Soviet Revolution. We have the horrors of the First and Second World War. We have genocide in Africa. Just look at the current state of our public schools, for goodness sake. Things are not getting better. And we know that this system is, is at war with God and at war with the truth, and we know that it's orchestrated by Satan. This system is orchestrated by Satan. Ephesians 6.12 tells us exactly this. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. James 4.4 sums it up even more plainly. Do you not know that friendship with the world, the cosmos, is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's the cosmos. That's the world of which Jesus speaks. And again, we're not talking about Yosemite. I'm not talking about a beautiful sunset or, or a newborn baby or, or a beautiful meal. We're talking about the world system here. And what are the consequences of us living in this world system? Well, it should be obvious on its face, given what we've just talked about. Unending catastrophe and suffering, just as Satan intended. And there's another consequence. We see it in our scripture today. What does Jesus say? He says, you will die in your sins. That doesn't sound very great, does it? And 1 John 2 Verse 15 echoes this sentiment and doubles down on it. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. So another consequence is that if you live in this world, you will die, and all the things that you lived for and loved in this world will pass away. That's the here. That's the desert on this side of the Red Sea. So the obvious next question is what? What's the there? What's the there? Well, that's, in, that's a more simple answer. Jesus is talking about where he's going to go. That's the there. And Jesus is talking about heaven here. Right? He said over and over through the book of John that he is from the Father. Right? He is from the Heavenly Father, from heaven. He says in chapter 6 that he is the bread of life. And he says in that same section that the bread of life is from heaven. He says in our verses here that he was sent by the Father. So Jesus is of heaven, and that's where he's going to return. We know that from all of his teachings throughout the scripture. So he's talking about heaven here. Heaven is the glorious, wonderful there that he's contrasting with the fallen here. Right? And given this crowd, I'm not sure I have to spend much time on an exegesis of the doctrine of heaven, but it is always nice to just pause for a second and think about how awesome it's going to be, isn't it? So, so let's just do that. So in Revelations 21, it tells us that heaven is a, is a city with walls of precious jewels and streets of gold, and even better, that it needs no sun or moon because of the ever-present light of God and his presence. Revelations 21.4 tells us even more specifically that in heaven our wondrous Savior will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, the world, has passed away. And if that beautiful, poignant description of our existence in heaven isn't enough to motivate you, through a careful and searching study of all of Scripture in its entirety, my sons and I are absolutely certain that you can have a T-Rex in heaven as a pet if you want it. And so if, from all of this, we should be able to conclude that heaven is where we want to be. We want to get there from here. Heaven is the promised land on the other side of the Red Sea. But that's the problem, isn't it? The Red Sea. Right? Scripture tells us there's an infinite chasm between us and God between us and heaven. Scripture tells us that, that, that God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. That He, First Timothy says, He dwells in unapproachable light. 
And then Romans 3 tells us of ourselves that, that none of us is righteous, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that, that the best things we've ever done in our lives, the most righteous things we've ever done in our lives is like a filthy rag to God. That's your infinite chasm. Perfect, holy God, dwelling in unapproachable light, filthy, sinful, fallen, us. They're absolutely incompatible. And so that's the question. How would you ever get from here to there? Well, now we can go back to the beginning. We can resolve that melody that's been hanging in everyone's head since, since the very beginning. We are talking about the Red Sea. God, like he did in the desert with the Israelites, shows up and makes a way. He parts the waters. He gives us a way to the promised land. I mean, Jesus begins his discussion of this way in verse 24. You have to dig a little bit for it. Where he says to the unbelievers... I told you that you would die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I think we can understand, conversely, Jesus to be saying that if you do believe that I am, you won't die in your sins, right? Doesn't that make sense? And so the first thing we have to understand in order to get from here to there, in order to not die in our sins, is that, is that Jesus Christ is the one true God. That's what he means when he says you have to believe that I am. This is another one of those famous I am statements that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. Brother Benny talked about one last week when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Remember that? What Jesus is doing is he's referring to God in Exodus when, he, when God describes himself to Moses as the great I am. What God means when he says that is, is that he is the eternal, self-existent, one true God. When Jesus, what Jesus means when we, he says we have to believe that I am is the exact same thing. We have to believe that Jesus is the eternal, self-existent, one true God. And so the first component, component of this way that Jesus is revealing here is that we have to understand that he's the one true God. And then he also links this in this really interesting way in scripture here to his sacrifice. Let's look at that in verse 28. Here Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, the same I am again. And I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Lifting up the Son of Man is a reference to, to the crucifixion. When Jesus will, like the serpent on Moses' staff in the wilderness, be lifted up on the cross. And so when Jesus says this, what he's doing is he's linking these two concepts. He's linking the idea, belief in Jesus as the one true God with an understanding that's brought about by having witnessed the crucifixion. An understanding that's brought about by seeing the one true God sacrifice himself on the cross. And so I think we're starting to sort of come to the point here, aren't we? The, the point is that, that what this dialogue is really about is Jesus' foreshadowing and teaching about the gospel. It's the gospel here. And Jesus makes that explicit later. And a discussion that he, sat, that he has later with those that believe in him that's an obvious and stunning contrast with the discussion he's having here with those that don't, Jesus makes this obvious. It's in John 14, 14. And here Jesus tells his believers, and keep in mind a, a contrast with what we've seen already that he's said to the non-believers here. He says to them, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there also you will be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus answered, and famously, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells us he is the way. He is the bridge across the infinite chasm to the Father. And I think finally, to fully appreciate what Jesus is saying here, I think we have to grapple with the symbolism that's inherent in the cross and the crucifixion itself. After all, Jesus says here that it's by witnessing the crucifixion that the Jews will finally understand who he really is. So there's something in the symbolism of the crucifixion that will help bring them to this understanding. And I think once we delve into that symbolism, it's, it's absolutely staggering. And so we can start with the cross itself. And what is a cross but an intersection? It's, it's, a, it's a link between two things going in two very different directions. And then you think about that cross at the time of the crucifixion. It's, it's, it's planted in the ground, so it's sort of of this world. But at the same time, it's extending into the sky. It's extending into the heaven. It's, it's almost like a symbolic bridge between those two things. Right? And, and the symbolism doesn't end there. We also have to consider Jesus Christ himself. Right? We know that Jesus Christ is, is miraculously and inexplicably both perfectly God and perfectly man. Right? He's, he's, this, he's this link between God and mankind. And so you start to put all of this together and you see that you have this, this intersection, this link that at the time of the crucifixion is occupying the space between both heaven and earth. And then on this cross, on this intersection, you, you have this being who's the only being in the history of, of existence that, that brings together the separated God and mankind. You have all this symbolism coming together into one place. What is it all pointing to? What does all inspired scripture point to? What is the, the God-shaped hole in our hearts that we were talking about at the beginning point to? What does all of existence point to? It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to his suffering. It's all pointing to his sacrifice for us. It's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus Christ, when he's lifted up on the cross, is the intersection of all intersections. He's the bridges of all bridges. He is the way across the Red Sea. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Praise Jesus, y'all. Praise Jesus. And so, having laid all of this out, Having talked through all this, if there's anyone in the hearing of my voice who is still here, who's still suffering in this world, you know or hope that there's something better, there's a there, and you don't have hope of getting there, you don't know how, I pray that the truth and the hope of Jesus' words here inspire you to accept him as your Savior. I pray that the truth... And the hope of Jesus' words here inspire you to step on that path, to step on that bridge from the darkness into the light. If that describes you, please speak to an elder, speak to a deacon, speak to just about anyone in this church, really, and they would be absolutely honored to step alongside of you on that path. But for those of us who are already on that path, I think there's a message for us here, too. To see this, let's return for a second to the audience that Jesus is addressing in the passage that we've just read. We know that they're the non-believing Jews. We know that most of them are probably Jewish leadership. But also from this scripture, we know that they were sickeningly 
self-righteous. And maybe it's not obvious from the text. You have to dig into it a little bit. But you have to go back to verse 21 where Jesus says that he's going to heaven and that they can't come to where he's going. Right? Remember, it's because they don't believe in him and they're going to die in their sins. They can't follow him to heaven. And just for the record, the Jewish people knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said this. He said it over and over again. At the beginning of our reading here, it says he told them again. And we saw this in chapter 7 where he told them the exact same thing. So they knew exactly what he meant when he said this. But look at what their response is to him. They say in verse 22, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. To make this connection, to see the self-righteousness here, you have to understand what Josephus and, and other historians tell us about the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish tradition, someone who commits suicide has essentially committed an an unforgivable sin, the most abhorrent sin, and they're condemned forever to go to the deepest, darkest realm of Hades, the furthest that you can get from the presence of God, right? And so when the Jewish people say this, they're not saying, oh gosh, does does Jesus mean he's going to commit suicide and we can't go with him? No. What they're doing is they're maliciously twisting his words to be a confession of their righteousness, that they're so righteous that they're certainly going to go to heaven and they can't follow Jesus to where he's going because he's going to commit suicide and go to hell. That's what they're saying about Jesus. They're so self-righteous. They're so sure of their own goodness and their own holiness and so certain of their ticket to heaven that they're mocking the very idea of sin and mocking the very idea of needing a savior. They scorn him to his face. So yes, we can tell from our scripture today that that Jesus' audience was sickeningly self-righteous. He also says that they're of this world. They're of this cosmos, as we defined it earlier. And what he means by this, of course, is that they're invested in the, in the world system that was orchestrated as, we saw by, that is orchestrated as we saw by Satan. He says this directly to them and elsewhere in, in the Gospel of John. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do his desires. He's telling them that they are in love with this world. They've believed Satan's lies and they live according to those lies which govern the world system. So they're self-righteous. They're lovers of the world, or they're of this world. And I think they're they're so unwilling to give these two things up that they're also obstinate in their unbelief. As we've covered already, Jesus has, has performed miracles over and over and over again that confirmed his deity. By this time in the Gospel of John, the evidence that Jesus Christ is God is absolutely overwhelming. It's undeniable. But in their greed, and in their pride, and in their self righteousness, the Jews denied Jesus anyway. And they were hostile to him. We see this today in our scripture. They were derisive. They were scornful of him. We've seen elsewhere that they call him demonic. We saw last week they called him a liar. We see that they constantly try to entrap him and trick him and undermine his ministry. And we see that they'll ultimately be responsible for his unjust arrest and his torturous execution. They didn't just deny the truth of Jesus and the salvation he brought. They launched an outright assault on it. So they were self-righteous. They were of this world. They were obstinate in their unbelief, and they were hostile to the gospel. So my question to you is, do you know anyone like this? My guess is the answer is yes. The world is filled with people like this. Take self-righteousness, for example. We're told by the current intellectual elite that to even believe there is a God is, is an ignorant superstition. And we're told in smug arrogance that it's human reason that can save us. Listen to this. 
It is time we admitted, from kings and presidents on down, that there is no evidence that any of our books was authored by the creator of the universe. The Bible, it seems, was the work of sand-strewn men and women who thought the earth was flat and for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emerging technology. To rely on such a document as the basis for our worldview, however heroic the efforts of its redactors, is to repudiate 2,000 years of civilizing insights that the human mind has only just begun to inscribe upon itself through secular politics and scientific culture. We see the greatest problem confronting civilization is not merely religious extremism, rather, it is a larger set of cultural and intellectual accommodations we have made to the Christian faith itself. This is a quote from Sam Harris, who many of you know is wildly popular now from his best-selling book, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Similarly to the humanists, other world religions tell us that we can work or pray or meditate or buy our way into heaven or or to a better afterlife. These are all just forms of self-righteousness. We're also surrounded by people who are of this world, aren't we? Of people who are obsessed with their appearance and with their wealth, the prestige of their occupation, their Facebook following, or is it Twitter following, whatever it is, with their followings on social media, right? People who are are of this world. And we're also surrounded by people who, especially in the United States, who have heard the gospel over and over and over again. They've seen evidence of the gospel over and over and over again, and they're obstinate in their unbelief. And finally, I think that that hostility towards Christianity is so pervasive in our culture, I don't really even need to cite examples to make my point. My guess is that all of our experiences in our work and in our school make that point for me. And so I think we're surrounded by people who are self-righteous, who are of this world, obstinate in their unbelief, and hostile to the gospel. And so the even more important question becomes, I think, what is our response to people like that? What was your response to Sam Harris's smug critique of Christianity? What is your response when you hear people say of you and say of Christians that you're ignorant and bigoted and racist and misogynist and hateful and judgmental and hypocritical and deceitful and weak? You know that's what they say. What is your response when people lay the bloodbath of the last two centuries at the feet of Christianity, at the feet of our beloved Savior? Well, if you're anything like me, you're tempted to anger. If you're anything like me, you're tempted to resentment. If you're anything like me, you're tempted to write people off like this and to focus my outreach efforts on people who are a bit more deserving. That feels good, doesn't it? It's easy, isn't it? But that's just me. Actually, you know what? In case there are one or two other people in the congregation who are tempted along those same lines, maybe we should look at at the response of Jesus to people like this. We've just spent the better part of an hour unpacking it and what it exactly means. Was Jesus resentful to them, to people like this? Did Jesus write them off? No. I think we can understand from what we've just gone through that Jesus witnessed to them. I think it's really easy. When Jesus says, you're going to die in your sins, I think it's really easy for us to take how we would respond to people like that and project that onto our Savior. I think it's really easy to see a triumphant pronouncement of their condemnation, their comeuppance. That's how we would write the script, isn't it? That would feel good to us. 
And in fact, I think you can see evidence in Scripture that there are people and even cultures that have gone so far into the darkness, so far into the world, that essentially it's in, it may be impossible for them to, to, to come to faith and reach salvation. That's true. You can see that. And some people read the Scripture here that this way. And I think there's, you know, there may be evidence that that's exactly what, at least a component of what God is talking or Jesus is talking about here. But I think there's a better lesson we can take from it. Because isn't it Jesus' intent that none should perish, but all should come to believe? Aren't we commanded to speak the truth and love? I think we can be certain that's what Jesus is doing here. And we see in verse 30 that, in fact, based on his words here, some do come to believe in him. And so I think it makes sense that that, that was Jesus' intent when he, he said these words. Yes, what he's saying is harsh. Yes, what he's saying would have been a slap in the face to his listeners. But I think Jesus is using language like this because that's exactly what he thinks they needed to hear in order to have an opportunity to come to faith. I think this is a last warning. I think it's a wake-up call. And so, no, I don't think Jesus' response here is what we would want his response to be. I think Jesus' response here was one of love. And in just a few weeks from from here, Jesus' response is to go to go to the cross for these very people. And so I think that we're called when we see hostility to Christianity to respond in exactly that same way, in love. To be clear, yes, of course, we uncover lies and insist on the truth. Yes, of course, we fight with every fiber of our being the evil that's propagated in this world by Satan through those who believe his lies. I see nowhere in Scripture a call to passivity. In fact, I see the opposite. But when it comes to the people with whom we are confronted, I think our response has to be, like Jesus's, one of love. I mean, after all, just like the, the Jewish non-believers that Jesus was confronted with, the people who confront us in our schools and in our work and online and in the media are created in God's image, aren't they? They were so beloved by Christ that he would go to the cross for them. They're the one in the 99, just like we were. And so ultimately, our response needs to be one of love. It needs to be one of sharing the gospel with them over and over and over again in the way that they need to hear it, exactly the way Jesus did. Because ultimately, isn't that the answer? The gospel? Right? Isn't, isn't that the answer here and in eternity? Isn't the gospel the answer to the suffering and the tension and the friction that we see in the world around us? It's the gospel. And I think these people need to hear the gospel as much, if not more, than anyone else. And finally, I think that we have to recognize Jesus' sense of urgency here. Jesus' warning here is harsh because it is so dire. I think just like Jesus, we need to understand exactly how you witness to people who are hostile to the gospel, and I think we need to be doing it now. Time is short. And to drive home this point about urgency, I'm going to conclude today by sharing a, a personal story with you guys. And as many of, of you know, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was in Afghanistan in 2009. And I served there with a young man, and this is not his name, and it doesn't matter, but his, uh, we'll call him Sergeant Hicks. Sergeant Hicks was a, a brilliant young Marine. He was smart. He was sharp. He was well-read. He was a, a really brilliant artist. He would sort of always carry with him a black felt-tip pen, 
And you could always tell where Sergeant Hicks had been, had been bored somewhere for an hour or two because there would be these beautiful little murals on the wall or inside the turret of a tank. I mean, he was a 20-year-old Marine, so it was always girls or a skull and crossbones with like a tank exploding out of the forehead or something. But he was really good. And, and, he, was, and he was my friend. He was my friend. And, and uh, after I was saved, I remember late one night, as, as people do in, in, in all walks of life, um, we were uh, uh, talking about it, and I was telling him about it, and I'll never forget his response to me. He was, without question, of this world, and his response was of absolute derision. He was my friend, and so he had the license, he thought, to, to say these things, but he said, sir, goodness gracious. He didn't say goodness. You could imagine. He said, sir, I thought you were a smart guy. I cannot believe that you were in love with some God who would condemn me and other people who are good to hell and fire forever because two people 10,000 years ago got tricked by a talking snake in the woods into eating an apple? Are you serious? This is what he said to me. And of course, I was a new believer. I couldn't even spell Geisler, and so I had no response to him, right? And so I remember walking away with my tail between my legs and just being angry and hurt and resentful. And for about four weeks after that, that was my response. All I did was imagine what I would say the next time it came up, right? The clever thing that I would say to put him in his place that I hadn't thought of right then. You know how you do that? For four weeks, that's all I did. For four weeks, I never once went to him and said, you know what, Hicks? You're right. There's some stuff in here that's hard to wrap your mind around. There's some stuff in here I don't even get. But there's some stuff in here that can really change your life. It never occurred to me to do that. Four weeks later, Sergeant Hicks got hit by an IED. And I was with him when he died in pain, in confusion, and in terror. One conversation. And I say all of this to drive home the point that we are surrounded by Sergeant Hicks's every day. Time is short. There are people around us who are groping for the bridge in the dark across the infinite chasm around us all the time, and they have days or weeks to find it. So my challenge to you, my challenge to all of us, is the next time we're confronted with someone, a lost soul who's hostile to the gospel, that we respond not as we would want to, but as Jesus did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you so much for the way that you've made for us. For those of us who haven't found it yet, we pray that we do today and that, and that your word inspires us to follow you. And for those of us who know you and know what you've done for us, we pray that this word inspires us to respond to you and to have the courage to do it in the way you would have us do it. Pray that your word changes our lives as we go about our lives. Changes our, excuse me, our hearts as we go about our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.